0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How you doing today, Sarah?
1: I am doing pretty good. We had a nice little visit with my mom, coming over to drop off the Christmas presents, and we got to give her her Christmas present. Uh, So that was a very lovely time. Yeah. How are you today?
0: I'm doing well. Uh, I also enjoyed that visit, and I'm super excited for this episode's movie. Yes. What are we watching? Well, Sarah, today we are watching Dracula, aka Horror of Dracula, from 1958, directed by... Terence Fisher
1: I've been looking forward to this for a long time yeah
0: you've never seen this movie
1: that is correct yeah uh, my only knowledge about the movie is that Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing are in it and that Dracula's eyes go red
0: mm-hmm. so I'm gonna try my best to spoil as little as possible okay because I'm super excited for your reactions to this movie all right um, but before we get into talking, I I want to address the title of this movie so that pedants don't yell at us. So this movie's original title is simply Dracula. Mm -hmm. That's the title it was released under in the UK. In the US, it was released under the title Horror of Dracula. I'm going to get into the reasons for that later. Mm -hmm. But I will say that typically I tend to refer to this movie as Horror of Dracula the reason I do that is twofold. One, it helps eliminate confusion about which version of Dracula I'm talking about.
1: Kind of like the same reason why we say Spanish Dracula.
0: Right. Um, you know, I could say like Hammer Dracula or UK Dracula or Dracula 1958. But by saying Horror of Dracula, you immediately know what I'm talking about. Secondly, in my head, it matches with Curse of Frankenstein. hmm So it it continues that titling convention, which in in my mind is important. So if I refer to the movie at any point today as Horror of Dracula, it's for those reasons. So if you refer back to episode 209 of Scream Scene, which I recommend you do uh, for background on most of the people involved in this movie (laughs) and their interesting life histories up to this point... Hammer Film Productions' Curse of Frankenstein was released in May of 1957, grossing 2.3 million pounds on a budget of 65,000 pounds or in the US dollars of the time, that is 8 million dollars on a cost of 270,000. So of course, Hammer's going to want to capitalize on that astounding success. So while the studio's next projects, um, The Abominable Snowman and *Quatermass 2, had origins that predated Curse of Frankenstein, they did confirm to the company that the move to X-rated horror films was indeed the correct one. Armed with the ability to now make their first film that was like explicitly a follow-up to Curse of Frankenstein's success, naturally the thing to do was to make Dracula. Just as in the days of Universal and sort of also true in the years to come, you rarely get a version of one without getting a version of the other soon after. Now, of course, we've seen a few different iterations of Dracula Mm -hmm. over the years. So Sarah, why don't you sort of take us back to Bram Stoker's original novel and walk us through sort of our experiences with adaptations of the story so far?
1: Absolutely. So Bram Stoker's novel Dracula was published in 1897, so a long legacy. And it is a gothic horror, um, but I think part of why it was so successful is because it brought a lot of the supernatural elements to England. It dabbles in that invasion literature movement. Uh, As far as the novel goes, It's an epistolary novel, so everything's in letters and captain's logs and all that (laughs) jazz. Um, But I'm going to hit, like, the main plot points, uh, not necessarily in the order that they were revealed in the novel. Sure. Um, So Jonathan Harker is a solicitor, and he is headed to the Carpathian Mountains because there is a Count Dracula looking to purchase some real estate in and around London. So Harker gets there, weird castle, weird villagers... He explores the castle and meets some weird vampiric women and Dracula like pulls these women off of Harker by using a uh, child in a bag, a A bag baby. baby. Yeah. (laughs) But soon after that, Dracula leaves to go to London alone and Harker is left to these vampiric women. Eventually Harker does escape and um, makes his way to a Budapest hospital. Meanwhile, um, we get a captain's log where the captain's like, yeah, everyone on the ship is getting sick and it's really weird and everyone's dying and I have to tie myself to the wheel in order to actually get to England. So everyone on board is killed and it's very mysterious, but there is a large dog scene leaving the uh, shipwreck uh, that crashes near Whitby in England. Next, we have letters going from Lucy Westenra to a Mina Murray. Mina is um, engaged to Jonathan Harker, and she is best friends with Lucy. And Lucy's telling her about the proposals that she's had from, like, these three different guys. She has accepted Arthur Holmwoods, um, the other two gentlemen being Dr. John Seward and Cowboy Quincy Morris. Put a cowboy
0: in your novels, guys. Yeah, don't be a coward.
1: No one can stop you. Anyways, Mina um, heads to Lucy's uh, house, estate, whatever, in Whitby for some holidays. But as they're there, Lucy is becoming more and more sick. Mina does get a letter from Harker saying, like, I'm dying in Budapest. So she goes to uh, nurse Jonathan back to health and bring him back to England. Meanwhile, Dr. Seward contacts his mentor, Dr. Van Helsing, to be like, I don't know what to do with Lucy. Why is she sick? Please help. Now, Van Helsing is very coy about what he thinks is going on with Lucy, um, but he does say that it seems to be acute blood loss. Strangely, a large dog, almost like a wolf, seems to be um, hunting in around Whitby and Sight of that dog causes Lucy's mom to die of a heart attack, um, and Lucy dies soon after. Almost to the night that Lucy dies, um, some nearby children start being stalked by a lady, a lady in white. And Van Helsing claims that, yeah, that's Lucy, and confirms that she is a vampire. They go to her crypt, they stake her... Behead her and put a piece of uh, put a clove of garlic in her mouth. Mina and Jonathan return. Uh, They are now married and they join the fight to battle Dracula. They use Dr. Seward's sanatorium as uh, their HQ and they go about locating the boxes of dirt that are scattered throughout London. Using Renfield, who is a patient of Dr. Seward at the asylum, Dracula manages to get into the asylum to attack Mina several times, and on the last time, um, getting her to drink his blood, which means that as soon as she dies, she will become a vampire unless they can kill Dracula first. So Van Helsing uses hypnosis to exploit the psychic connection that Mina seems to have with Dracula in order to track him down. He is escaping back to Romania with his last box of earth. So Van Helsing and Mina head off to Dracula's castle, um, and Van Helsing destroys uh, Dracula's wives, while Harker, Holmwood, Seward, and Quincy are chasing Dracula, who is being aided by Romani. They get a final battle, a final fight, and Jekyll is defeated with Jonathan sloshing him across the neck and Quincy stabbing him in the heart. Uh, however, Quincy is killed in the battle. So Mina is saved. Seven years later, we hear that Mina and Jonathan have a son named Quincy.
0: After the bravest man I ever knew. <laughs>
1: So that's the novel, and like I said, it was a big success. The first adaptation that we saw on the podcast was 1922's Nosferatu, but it was unauthorized. Now, we covered Nosferatu in episode 10. It's currently ranked number 30 out of like... 200
0: and some at this point. 200 and some.
1: Um, And we speculate as to why they might not have gone to the trouble of getting... Permission or authorization in that episode. But to briefly cover it, Stoker had died in 1912, and his widow, Florence Belcom, was managing the estate. Now, Nosferatu said that it was an adaptation of Dracula, and they did change names and kind of smooth over some plot points, but it uh, explicitly said, hey, we're adapting Dracula. And an anonymous letter was sent from Germany to England to Florence Belcom to be like, hey, you know about this? And she was like, no, I do not. And she eventually won in the litigation against the film studio Prana uh, in order to get Nasrattu basically like taken off the release schedule, shoved into a closet.
0: All the prints destroyed.
1: All the prints destroyed. Now, the film did resurface in like the late 20s. In the United States, that would be around 1929. And of course, we, we watched it for the podcast. So it's... um similar in plot beats it's easy to tell that it is an adaptation of dracula but there are some changes it is set in 1838 in germany and our solicitor this time his name is thomas hutter he heads to transylvania to assist a count orlock with um purchasing real estate in visburg now orlock sees a photo of hutter's wife ellen and is like oh what a pretty neck (laughs) next we see uh thomas um finding a book of exposition in the library of like here's what vampires are and how to spot them and he's like oh shit urlok's a vampire just as he discovers this urlok leaves to visburg and as he makes his way through germany there is an unspecified plague uh traveling through at the same time Hutter makes his way home and brings the uh, book of exposition with him. And Ellen reads the book, realizes that um, a pure hearted woman could defeat this vampire by basically distracting him with her blood so that he uh, doesn't realize the sun rises up. So she does this and sacrifices her life to destroy Nosferatu and keep the count out past his bedtime. (laughs) So you can see some of the plot changes here, very much a streamlined version of not as many characters. Um, But the biggest change, I think, to the story is the appearance of Nosferatu. It's very much a um, more rat-like appearance than you see in other adaptations. And that kind of fits with the shift to describing his movements through Germany as a plague killing many, many people. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas uh, in the novel, it feels very much more localized and um, the Count is described as like a, a kind of romantic figure.
0: Yeah, he starts out as like a weird, gross old man. And then as he drinks blood throughout the novel, he gets younger and younger, but definitely not the like rat monster from Nosferatu. Yeah. I think the other big thing with Nosferatu is it introduces the idea of sunlight killing Mm -hmm. vampires which is like not a thing in the novel
1: yeah in the novel the way that they defeat him is definitely the stake through the heart and the use of garlic Mm -hmm.
0: especially yeah i think he's weaker in sunlight like his powers are weaker but he doesn't like it doesn't hurt him
1: Mm -hmm. now the first authorized adaptation of the novel came in the 1924 play by hamilton dean this is a stage play so they cut down the novel in terms of like scenes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, we don't have a scene on a boat. We don't have a scene in Transylvania. We're pretty focused on what happens in Whitby. But overall, the plot beats are very similar to what's in the book. So we have Harker and Dr. Seward discussing Harker's wife, Mina, and her condition so she's already sick seward sends for his mentor van helsing and they also happen to discuss a new neighbor named count dracula harker is assisting with count dracula purchasing real estate in london but dracula's already revived here now van helsing is told the history of the case including mina's friend lucy dying of a similar illness uh quincy is here but is a lady i don't know why the change but but quincy's a lady here still American and Van Helsing explains that this illness is from a vampire and that it's probably Dracula. (laughs) We still have um, the character Renfield in Dr. Seward's Asylum here. Renfield acts as a little bit of a spy and enables Dracula to get in and out of the houses which also allows for Van Helsing and Dracula to have several confrontations face to face. Lucy still becomes a vampire with um, those missing children and they stake her etc. Um, they still go through the process of finding boxes and they have the finale at Carfax Abbey. That is the 1924 play. It was seen by an American stage producer named Horace Liveright, who was like this is dope I want to bring it the states and so he hired writer john balderston to adapt it for broadway balderston's 1927 stage version introduces bella lugosi as dracula and edward van sloan as van helsing and it's pretty similar to uh, dean's version there's some more streamlining some minorly adjusted beats Uh, for no good reason it switches lucy and mina's names But, you know, it's the same basic plot points of the Dean play is there.
0: Is that the point where Quincy gets dropped?
1: Yes. The 27 play was a huge hit playing across the country and getting picked up by Universal to be adapted to film in 1931. We covered the 1931 Dracula in episode 24. It is currently ranked number 19. In the film, they switch Mina and Lucy's names back. And the rest of the film is pretty much the same as the play. Only because now that they are no longer limited to what they can do on a stage, they expand the story to be able to show you stuff in Transylvania, to be able to show you what happens on the boat, etc. The other things that they kind of change is that it's now Renfield going to the castle, not Harker. Renfield comes with Dracula on the boat, uh, basically going mad and um, becoming a servant to the count. And upon arriving into London, Renfield is taken to Dr. Seward's asylum. There are increased opportunities for interaction between Dracula and his target slash victims, uh, including, you know, showing them meeting at a play and him coming over to the house, etc., The climax comes at Carfax Abbey with Jonathan Harker and Van Helsing following Renfield to the Abbey and Van Helsing taking care of business while Jonathan gets Mina out of there. Um, And of course, Lucy still is the woman in white killing children.
0: Yeah, I think like what you kind of see pruned off as we go through this process is like Lucy's like suitors. Yeah. Because by the time we get to the 31 version, we don't have Quincy, we don't have Arthur, and Seward gets like an age bump up and is Mina's dad Mm -hmm. in the 31 version. And then of course, you have, you know, the influence of Lugosi's take on the character.
1: Yes, making it very much more romantic character. Uh, Doesn't start off old and gets young, like he's just always uh, kind of a an Eastern bachelor, I think, <laughs> is how he would describe his Dracula.
0: Yeah. Um, when I think of Lugosi's Dracula, charismatic is the word that comes to mind.
1: Longtime listeners and horror fans in the know will know that there is a Spanish language version of this 31 Dracula. We cover that film in episode 25. And despite the apparently common thought on the internet, we do not consider Spanish Dracula better than original Dracula because it is ranked at number 146. As we explain in episode 25, it's kind of a a shot-for-shot match to the 1931 film, Um, but they do have some minor changes, uh, including a stronger emphasis on specifically Catholicism, whereas um, Todd Browning's uh, film, doesn't specifically call out
0: yeah it's just generic christian imagery
1: yeah um lucy is named lucia jonathan uh is now juan and um dr seward is here with his daughter ava instead of mina
0: the other thing about like the spanish dracula from 31 is like it has more content i guess like in the sense that like scenes that were cut from todd browning's version are in the Spanish version, or like scenes are longer, like cut dialogue is still in it. And that's kind of like neat and cool to see all that extra content. Mm -hmm. But our opinion when we watched it, as I recall, was that it kind of slows down the pacing.
1: Yeah. And the other thing is that the Dracula shown in that movie, he's still charismatic, but he just feels like a little too over the top. Whereas Legosi did things a little bit more subtly.
0: Yeah. Like, legosi the whole thing in like balderston's conception of dracula is that like dracula's kind of like hiding out pretending to just be like a charismatic neighbor right to get mm-hmm. close to everyone and you can buy it with legosi because all of his weirdness just kind of comes off as like oh he's foreign but like the character in spanish dracula is like yeah of course he's a vampire. You know what I mean? Like, he's hissing at everyone and he has those big fangs. He doesn't have (laughs) fangs, but he he is very intense.
1: Most decidedly, he does not have fangs because teeth were introduced in the next specifically Dracula film that we talked about, which was 1953's Dracula in Istanbul. Um, We covered this in episode 163 and it's currently ranked at number 140. Not bad. Not a bad showing. Um, so Dracula in Istanbul is a Turkish adaptation of the Turkish adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel, mm. uh, which was done in 1928 and was titled Impaler Vovoid. As we talk about in episode 163, the cultural context of Dracula in Turkey is so interesting and Mm -hmm. intricate and I really encourage people to look into it if not just listen to the episode because there's a lot of layers here because what they do is more than just a like transplantation of Dracula going to England and changing it to Dracula going to Turkey there's many more layers there because of the history of contention between Romania and Turkey
0: yeah like in short the Turkish version actually sort of deals with the implications of the fact that Dracula is Vlad the Impaler in a way where Stoker, like, was very vague about that. And it was, like, that backstory for Dracula is kind of just there to provide, like... Flavor. Flavor and color, yeah. Whereas um, the Turkish version, because Vlad the Impaler was very much tied up in the history of Turkey, um, they have to actually, like, address it.
1: So, um, our solicitor is named... Asmi, and he is traveling to Romania to uh, assist with real estate business. In Romania, he meets the Count Dracula and Dracula explains, you know, Here, here's a painting of my ancestor Vlad the Impaler and ancestor can be put into quotation marks because they look very similar. There is a hunchback servant here in the castle, who tries to warn Asmi, like, don't go out wandering at night, like, sleep in the library instead of your room. Um, eventually, as Asmi discovers that Dracula is actually a vampire, that hunchbacked servant is killed for helping Asmi. And Asmi escapes before anything terrible can happen to him. But he does try to kill Dracula by chopping his head off with a shovel and then shooting Dracula, point blank, (laughs) emptying the revolver right into him, which of course doesn't work. But Ozmi escapes and makes it back to Turkey, where his wife, Guzin, is and is spending time with her friend, Sedan. Sedan is engaged to Turan, and she's becoming ill. Now, Dr. Akif is here and he's trying to figure out what's going on with Sedan and eventually calls in his mentor, Dr. Nuri. Sedan does eventually die and she goes after children uh, like her Lucy counterpart. Dr. Nuri is like, yes, vampirism, that's what's going on here and takes Akif, Azmi, and Turan to Sedan's crypt to destroy her. Guzin is a dancer at a music hall. And she is next to be targeted by Count Dracula. Now, Guzin has been helping the team uh, identify where the boxes of Earth are. And they put in cloves of garlic to repel Dracula from them. Um, and she is targeted while she's at the music hall by Dracula. He entrances her, gets her to dance for him. And Azmi is like, wow, Gusin's taking a long time to like come out after work. I better go in to look after her. Walks in and chases Dracula back to his last coffin and then stakes him. And that's how they defeat him. Mm-hmm. That's the end. So definitely some changes here. Uh, I, I really do appreciate how at the end it's just like Ozmi v. Dracula mm. um, makes it kind of more personal than like all these other characters. But the biggest thing that Dracula in Istanbul brings to the mythos of film adaptations is we get to actually see teeth in the count's mouth
0: fangs specifically
1: (laughs) yes uh i suppose we have always seen teeth yes now i'll i'll add an asterisk that i some people might be feeling the need for Mm. um nasratu does have like two little like fangs that look more like rat teeth yeah
0: they aren't incisors
1: yeah um so caveat of that the Count Dracula in Dracula in Istanbul has the actual like what you think of as vampire teeth. Those are the adaptations of the Dracula novel that we have seen for the podcast but I wanted to shout out three honorable mentions here. Mm -hmm. First is 1936's Dracula's Daughter so that's a sequel to the 31 Dracula and I wanted to mention it because it's like first Lady Vampire as our main character, Dracula going after ladies mm-hmm. has always had a sexual nature to it or inter- possible interpretation. A subtext. Subtext. And they continue that subtext in Dracula's Daughter to extend to a homosexual reading of the film. So I think that's important to acknowledge, as well as the fact that she is looking for a cure. She does not want to be a vampire anymore. Um, If you want to hear more about Dracula's Daughter, you can listen to episode 62. The next honorable mention is 1945's House of Dracula. And now the only reason I really mention this is because that movie's a little bit of a mess. You can kind of hear more about it in episode 134, but there's explicit acknowledgement of blood transfusions and a blood transfusion from Dracula into a normal guy makes him evil rather than necessarily a vampire. Um, It's a little bit of a mess, but because of the mention of blood transfusions and the fact that John Carradine is explicitly Count Dracula, I thought it worth mentioning. Um, And then the last one that I wanted to acknowledge here is 1957's Blood of Dracula, uh, which we talk about in episode 225. And the reason I bring up Blood of Dracula is there's no Dracula in the movie. The girl turns into a vampire, but it's almost as if they are conflating Dracula equals vampire in the way of like, she's turning into a Dracula.
0: Yeah, she she turns into sort of a gender-swapped Bella Lugosi, basically, in terms of like the look.
1: Yeah, um, so I thought it worthwhile to mention that that's the state of vampires in the United States
0: right now. Right, sure. That's like our most recent vampire movie. Yeah. So as you can kind of see from Sarah's synopses, elements of the plot have like evolved over time and some adaptations like keep stuff and some drop stuff. Um, certainly you can see the way that like from the novel to the Hamilton Dean play to the John Balderston play to the 1931 movie, the plot evolved like Renfield sort of going from being someone who's like susceptible to Dracula's influence to straight up being like a servant of dracula yeah right and things like that the pairing down of the characters the simplifying of relationships et, mm-hmm. cetera, et cetera. there is obviously always some through lines like dracula um but also <laughs> um like jonathan harker is generally kind of useless
1: yes that's one thing I really love about Nasratu is Hutter is is just as useless as David Manners Harker.
0: Yeah, and with the two women, generally speaking,
1: Lucy's the bad girl; Mina is the good girl. Yeah, that is changed a little bit in Jekyll and Istanbul. You could make the argument that Guzin is a bit of a bad girl because she dances at a music hall. But neither she nor Sedan are like bad girls, quote unquote.
0: Yeah. And when you say like bad girl, good girl, what we're talking about is like in the context of like Victorian sexual morality mm-hmm. where like Lucy kind of wants it.
1: Yeah. She strings along three guys in order to get like her pick of them. Yeah. And that is not seen as morally pure in yeah. victorian culture
0: and in a lot of adaptations she's sort of portrayed as like kind of being into dracula yeah um whereas yeah mina is much more of like an innocent pure virginal proper good girl so coming back to horror of dracula here in 1958 producer anthony hines assigned the job of adapting stoker's novel to jimmy Sangster, who had written x the unknown and Curse of Frankenstein. And Heinz set the budget for the film at 81,000 pounds, which is about $280,000 at the time. Mm -hmm. So a little bit more than what the budget for Curse of Frankenstein had been. The film was to have a running time of 90 minutes or less, and it had to be shot entirely at Bray Studios and the surrounding countryside. And as a reminder, Bray Studios was a country estate that Hammer had bought yeah. and then like hollowed out to turn it into a soundstage because renting the existing soundstages like um, Shepperton Studios and whatnot was all way too expensive. With these limitations in mind, Sangster set about with the intent of doing for Dracula what he had done for Frankenstein, which is to say, put a unique new take on the material. hmm He streamlined the story, eliminating several characters and combining several others, while also lessening the story's geographical scope. Several other characters were reinvented. Additionally, the Count's ability to shapeshift was dropped. Uh, Sangster would later say this was for realism, uh, but in reality it was to save on time and money. Yeah. Terrence Fisher returned from Curse of Frankenstein to direct the film. Fisher's take on Dracula was that the story, at its core, was a sexual story, and he wished to bring that sexuality to the fore in this adaptation. In his interpretation, Dracula preyed on the sexual frustrations of his victims, women trapped in sort of cold, sexually unsatisfying Victorian marriages, and kind of coming to them and offering them, like, something more exciting. It was decided to repeat the casting from curse of frankenstein of peter cushing and christopher lee at an imposing six foot five producer anthony Hines never considered anyone else for the role of the count while peter cushing was awarded the role of professor van helsing at first cushing balked at taking the role of like a wizened old man Uh, he didn't want to play the role under like a bunch of old age makeup and glasses and doing like a heavy Dutch accent. (laughs) And um, Cushing was assured that he wouldn't have to do any of that because the role had been rewritten with him in mind. Oh, nice. Cushing interpreted his version of the character as an idealist warrior fighting for the forces of good.
1: I feel like Edward Van Sloan would say the same.
0: Christopher Lee uh, accepted the role of Dracula with relish. Uh, finally a part that he could sink his teeth into oh boy ben <laughs> in curse of frankenstein he had largely been hired to play the monster because he's very tall mm-hmm. and intimidating looking uh, but he doesn't have any dialogue in that movie at all um dracula was a part where he'd finally get to like act lee would be paid 750 pounds for the movie which would be about like twenty three thousand dollars today um, So not bad, but not great. Lee had never seen a Dracula movie. <laughs> that honestly, actually, that could work to his benefit. And so instead, his reaction upon learning he had the role was to go get a copy of Bram Stoker's book and read it. Lee believed that Dracula had an erotic element to him that was fueled uh, not by the sexual frustrations of the women like Fisher thought, but by women's attraction to the danger of giving yourself fully to another person, um, becoming completely submissive to a more dominant personality so that that dominant personality can sustain themselves. Um, Cause you're literally like giving your life force up for the vampire. Lee believed that the character of Dracula was heroic, erotic, romantic, and dynamic. He also viewed Dracula as embodying what Lee called the loneliness of evil the tragedy of a character who cannot truly relate to anyone in their life. And in Lee's interpretation, Dracula wants to die, uh, but he cannot and is instead forced to go on living by his nature, which is an unquenchable thirst for blood.
1: That is really close to how I feel like Bella Lugosi would think of Dracula. So that's this is really cool. Okay.
0: Now, upon reading Sangster's script... Lee was frustrated to find that it was such a heavy reinvention of the novel. Lee felt that, like, Stoker's novel should be, like, adapted authentically. But Lee remained determined to bring to the role as much of what he felt was the character's essence as he possibly could within the script's parameters. The role of Arthur Holmwood, uh, who in the novel is the guy who Lucy ends up picking is played in this film by British actor Michael Goh. Born in 1916, Goh was a conscientious objector in World War II and served in the non-combatant corps. After the war, Goh began acting, making his film debut in 1948. Throughout the 50s, he appeared in film and on television, and before Dracula, his most notable role was probably as one of the two hired killers in Laurence Olivier's Richard III in 1955. Following this film, he would become a regular in the casts of Hammer's horror films. Much later in his career, he would be cast in 1989's Batman as Alfred Pennyworth. Hmm. Um, That film was directed by Tim Burton, who had been a big fan of Hammer horror growing up. Go would reprise that role in 1992's Batman Returns, 1995's Batman Forever, and 1997's Batman and Robin. Melissa Stribling plays the part of Mina, She was born in Scotland in 1926, and she had also been acting on film since 1948, and this was her biggest role yet. Her co-star as Lucy, Carol Marsh, was also born in 1926 as Norma Simpson. In 1948, she won the role of Rose in Brighton Rock, starring Richard Attenborough, out of 3,000 women who auditioned. That was basically like a crime film, like sort of a Scarface or public enemy, but in Britain, essentially, with Richard Attenborough as like the nasty gangster. Dope. Um, And basically the part of Rose is his like this innocent, naive girl who falls in love with him and falls under his sway and then gets like treated real bad. The film was a huge hit and kind of a watershed moment for sex and crime in British films. uh, But Marsh did not enjoy making the movie. In 1951, she played Scrooge's sister Fanny in the acclaimed Alistair Sim starring vehicle Scrooge. John Van Eysen plays the role of Jonathan Harker. He was born in South Africa in 1922, and he moved to Britain following the Second World War and took acting lessons, appearing on stage and on film beginning in 1950. We previously saw him as the tour guide around the alien-controlled factory in Quittermass 2. Okay. He would marry his first wife, Shirley Goulden, during the production of this film. In 1965, he became an executive at Columbia Pictures, and by 1970, he was head of production for that studio's non-U.S. films. After divorcing his first wife in 1977, he was the final romantic partner of Ingrid Bergman before her death in 1982 and he passed away in 1991. Valerie Gaunt, who had played Justine in Curse of Frankenstein, returns in this film playing a bride of Dracula. It was to be her final film role as she married a stockbroker in 1958 and retired. Shooting began on Remembrance Day 1957 at Bray Studios and lasted until Christmas Eve of that year. That's a really long shooting time. Yeah, that's over a month. Yeah. Uh, Second unit pickups and special effects shots uh, continued to be shot until January 3rd of 1958. Cinematography was by Jack Asher, who had shot Curse of Frankenstein. Like that film, Dracula was shot in widescreen and in Eastman color. Lee and Cushing both insisted on making their characters quite active, uh, jumping over tables and banisters and insisting on doing all their own stunts, much to the horror of the producers. (laughs) For the scene following Mina's first encounter with Dracula, Terence Fisher directed Melissa Stribling to play the scene as if she had just had the best sex of her life all night long. Amazing, okay? <laughs> Peter Cushing developed the choreography of Van Helsing and Dracula's final confrontation himself, including how Van Helsing ultimately repels and destroys Dracula. The filming of Dracula's Destruction was a very elaborate special effects shoot involving complex makeup and many other special effects techniques. At the time, it was one of the most gruesome scenes ever shot for a horror film.
1: Uh, what about the cut scene of the head melting in the acid from Curse of Frankenstein?
0: Um, Depends on what edit of which movie we're talking about, Okay, I guess. okay. The film's music is by James Bernard, who composed the music for Quatermass, X the Unknown, Quatermass 2, and Curse of Frankenstein. Um, He has a super interesting biography, so check out the episodes for those movies if you want to learn more about him. For the score of Dracula, Bernard created a main theme based on the three-syllable sound of the character's name. The film was released on May 21st, 1958 in the UK, distributed in the UK by Universal International, enabling Hammer to simply call the film Dracula. Sure. It was given an X rating by the BBFC and several cuts were made to the film by the BBFC, primarily to the scenes of staking and to Dracula's death scene, uh, removing some of the excellent effects work. In the United States, the film was distributed by Warner Brothers, who had also distributed The Curse of Frankenstein in the U.S. As Universal was still re-releasing the 1931 Dracula regularly in theaters at that time, Warner Brothers was required to change the title to Horror of Dracula. The film was wildly popular, Mm -hmm. grossing $3.5 million worldwide, uh, roughly a million pounds, Not as successful as Curse of Frankenstein, but still a huge success, and the big difference was this time the critics were on Hammer's side. While some still complained about the level of sex and violence, uh, like the Daily Telegraph, which complained that the X certificate wasn't enough and there was needed a D for disgusting, most critics praised the film. It was hailed by some, at the time, as the best horror movie ever made, and many noted that what gave the film its power was that it treated its subject matter seriously, which gave the shocks and terror greater impact.
1: I am so excited. You have no idea.
0: When the film was later released on television, it again suffered further cuts to the violence of the movie. In 2007, the British Film Institute conducted an extensive restoration, bringing the film back to the content of its original British theatrical release. This restoration was issued on Blu-ray in the UK in 2007 and by Warner Brothers as part of the Warner archive on Blu-ray in the U S in 2018. And that actually marked the first time that the British cut had been available on home video in the U S all the previous home video versions in the U S were Warner Brothers horror of Dracula version. However, A fully uncut version of the movie, including even what had been cut by the BBFC from the British version, had played in Japan in the 1950s, with all the gore intact. In 2012, Hammer funded a restoration effort to restore that missing footage, which had been discovered in rough shape at the Japanese National Film Center, and that restoration got a Blu-ray release in 2013. This longer version has yet to receive a North American release, however. The Warner Archive version from 2018 is available to watch on iTunes, Google Play, Microsoft, and YouTube.
1: Cool. I really hope, listeners, you're able to watch along. I am super excited. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Horror of Dracula from 1958, directed by Terrence Fisher.
0: See you on the other side, everybody.
1: welcome back to scream scene we just finished watching horror of dracula from 1958 directed by terence fisher ben how many times have you seen this movie
0: this is probably number three
1: this is my first time as we discussed Mm -hmm. in the context setting and it's dope i liked it a lot
0: (laughs) yes this movie is dope as hell uh i'm really glad that you liked it
1: yes did you have any doubts
0: um Well, I wasn't sure, because I feel like there are people who don't like this movie, and sometimes it's because, like, it doesn't follow the book, and it's, like, way, way off. There are people who find this movie too, like, campy for their liking, or, like, they criticize the, like paint red blood or like other things like that. None
1: of those things are things that I would chastise a movie for.
0: There are also people who seem to like this movie because of like a so bad it's good thing as if the movie is bad, which is wrong. Yeah, it is not bad. the movie is good.
1: Yeah. Well, let me give the synopsis. You already teased that, uh, or well, straight up said that it doesn't follow the book. hmm So, we are set in 1885, and Jonathan Harker arrives to Castle Dracula in Romania, and he's excited to get this post as a librarian. Hmm. Now when he arrives, there's no one home, so he lets himself in, there's a note from Dracula being like, hey, sorry I couldn't be here, but here's some food, here's dinner, and so Harker helps himself. And as he is finishing up dinner, it's clearly been a while, it's near sunset, a woman approaches, and she is dressed in a very, like, Grecian-inspired outfit. And she's like, you have to help me. Count Dracula is keeping me prisoner here, and I, I need to get out. You have to help me. And before Harker can be like, uh, what's with this? Um, this woman suddenly, like, freezes like she hears an internal voice and then runs off. Turning around, Harker sees Count Dracula standing at the top of a high staircase. And it's dope. I like it. I like it a lot, Ben. So the Count appears and talks and is like, hey, thanks for coming. Glad you're my librarian. Um, Let me show you to your room. Now after Harker is shown to his room, he does start to unpack. He takes out his diary um a photo of his fiance Lucy Holmwood and the count comments like oh who's this lovely young lady oh your fiance well you are a very lucky man mr Harker and then leaves and as soon as Harker is left alone the door is locked and he is unable to get out so uh Harker goes to his diary and starts adding that like Uh, The Count has no idea my true purpose here, um, and it's to end his reign of terror. Hmm, that's not from the book. (laughs) Eventually, Harker, later in the evening, is able to get out of his room. You know, we get some like voiceover that says like he's basically trying to find where Dracula sleeps um, and just explore the castle a bit. He manages to get to the library where he encounters that woman again. And she's again like, no, you, you have to help me. He keeps me here against his will. And Harker eventually is like, yeah, okay, I'll help you. And she embraces him and then fights him. Dun, dun, dun. This attack is interrupted with the Count coming in. Um, and the Count attacks the woman. And Harker, not realizing that he's been bit attacks the count to try to protect the woman and the count just like throws him off and is like fuck you don't know what's going on here and grabs the girl and and manages to get out next we see that harker awakens um back inside his room and he realizes um that he's been asleep the whole day he feels his neck can tell that he's been bit and writes in his diary i've become a victim of count dracula I don't know how much time I have left, so I must strike out now. He hides his diary outside the castle where a passerby will be able to find it. And then he goes and finds the count and the woman in their coffins in the basement. He stakes the woman and she like screams and she, now she's a beautiful young woman. After being staked, she kind of reverts to like her true age and she looks like an old woman either between like the psychic link or the screaming Dracula awakes and gets out of the basement before Harker can get over to his casket. By the time that Harker realizes this the sun has gone down and Dracula comes in closes the door fade to black.
0: What I love about this scene is with the way the sequence of events is you know while Harker's back is turned essentially Dracula gets up out of his coffin and it's like a standard horror movie thing where we don't see him do that. Harker just goes back to Dracula's coffin and Ooh, it's empty. And then Harker like looks up at the stairs leading out of here and sees like the light going dark. What would have made the most sense is if Dracula had been like hiding behind him, like had gotten out of the coffin and was hiding in the room. But instead Dracula emerges at the top of the stairs
1: And closes the door behind him. Which
0: means that Dracula got out of his coffin... Left. And then re-entered in order to be, like, the most dramatic reveal possible.
1: Yeah, that's Dracula, Ben. (laughs) What can I do to be the most dramatic? Yeah. Next, we see a man arriving at the local town uh, near Dracula's castle. And we learn that this man is Dr. Van Helsing. He is arriving after receiving a letter from his colleague... Jonathan Harker and he's asking around town like hey like Harker passed through here a couple days ago um have you seen him and everyone's very like no we're not going to talk to you he went up to the castle but we're not going to talk to you at all Van Helsing does manage to get the diary from a local and sees that yeah Harker has become a victim of Count Dracula after seeing that he hurries up to the castle just as Van Helsing arrives a carriage carrying a coffin just barrels out of the gates and leaves the castle grounds. Van Helsing goes in. Everything inside the castle has been packed up. The Count has gotten out of Dodge. And kind of most horrifying to Van Helsing is he sees his colleague Harker in a coffin with fangs. Um, Harker has become the hunted, I guess. Uh, he has become a vampire. And so... Van Helsing stakes him. And the next we cut to Van Helsing has returned to Bavaria to tell Mr. Arthur and Mrs. Mina Holmwood about the passing of Jonathan Harker, uh, who was engaged to Mr. Holmwood's sister, Lucy. And he's like, I'm not going to tell you any details, but he's dead. Now, Arthur's pretty frustrated and upset about this news. So he practically throws Van Helsing out. And Mina goes, well, Arthur, we can't tell Lucy because she's sick. She's too ill to be told about her fiance. We see that there is a Dr. Seward taking care of Lucy, treating her for anemia. But after the doctor leaves and Lucy's still kind of getting sick, uh, that night we see that
0: it's it's Dracula. He's, he's here to fuck up Lucy. And, like, I think the most... Noticeable thing about this scene, like the thing that really stands out, is that like Lucy's quote-unquote sick in bed, and everyone's like, "Oh, the doctor's gonna try and take care of you, blah, blah blah," and she's like, "Yeah, I can't get out of bed. I'm so weak, blah." And then everyone leaves, and like a delinquent child, like she immediately gets up out of bed, has a lot of energy because she uses it to like go to the window open the window which is like a door locks her own door the window's like a balcony window and then she like gets back into bed and sort of artfully poses herself in the bed and waits for dracula to come yes and bite her
1: yes (laughs) and he does so we cut to van helsing um in his study uh he has one of those like phonographs or whatever where you like you tell yourself notes and then you a Speaks dictaphone. Back to dictaphone. Yeah. he's
0: recording on wax cylinder. Yeah.
1: yeah, I knew that there was a word for it. <laughs> this is kind of how we get the exposition of like vampires are real and they the sunlight will literally destroy them. And it's underlined several times verbally that it will destroy them. Foreshadowing. And we get all of this other exposition about vampires that we don't need to go into. Um, Van Helsing gives his servant a letter to send first thing in the morning back to the Homewoods. So next morning, um, Mina Homewood is given this letter, and it's basically like brings her to Van Helsing because she has some of Jonathan's things, and he's like, yeah, Arthur seemed really mad at me, so I thought it best to like call you over and give it to you. Now this gives Mina an opportunity to be like, hey, you're a doctor. Lucy's been really sick for like the past 10 days. Um, can you take a look? I I just want a second opinion. And the 10 days catches Van Helsing's ear because that's when the count escaped from the castle. So he goes and looks over Lucy and is like... Uh, doesn't say this, but is like yeah, it's vampires. So he directs Mina to fill the room with garlic flowers and hung garlic cloves and is like, don't open the windows at night, nothing like that, um, because otherwise she is going to die and really impresses this urgency upon her. But of course, that night, Lucy is really upset with all of these flowers around her and gets her maid, Gerda, to remove them. And she's dead by morning. So Arthur's like what the fuck Van Helsing you like gave you second opinion it has not helped like you've brought nothing but death to the family over like the last couple of days I don't want anything to do with you but Van Helsing is like "I, I wasn't sure if you would be ready for this but given the state of Lucy's death and how closely tied to Jonathan's death it is I'm going to leave you Herker's diary and you can come to your own conclusions now like It's been like a week or so, maybe just a couple days, and Tanya, who is Gerda's daughter, claims to have seen Lucy walking about at night. No one really believes her, and that night Tanya gets called out by Lucy and calls to her and says, let's go for a walk and let's go to a place where it's private, where we can play, and takes her through the woods, while at the same time we see that Arthur who is like, well, it's weird that Tanya saw Lucy, so maybe I'll go check on the crypt. So Arthur is going to the cemetery. He checks on Lucy's crypt and is surprised to find it empty. That's when we see Lucy and Tanya arrive to the cemetery, and Lucy's like, oh, Arthur, you're here to visit me. That's so nice, and goes to embrace him when suddenly off screen we get... Van Helsing's arm with a cross coming at her. She hisses. It's a neat confrontation. He ends up um, pressing the cross to Lucy's forehead and it leaves like a burn mark. And this is enough to kind of convince Arthur that, yes, vampires are real. Lucy's a vampire. Dracula's afoot. Van Helsing says that, like, more than likely the reason why he Dracula has targeted Lucy is for revenge for Harker killing the Count's Bride. And he proposes to Arthur that they use Lucy to lead them to Dracula. But Arthur's like, no, this is like horrible for Lucy's soul. I just want her to be at rest. So they end up staking her. But Arthur does agree to help Van Helsing track down Dracula because clearly he's here in Bavaria. So in order to track him down, Arthur and Van Helsing head to the border control back at Ingolstadt, where, um, the, coffin full of dirt would have needed to go through because they're hoping to try to find what address it would have gone to while they are away Mina gets a strange message claiming that her husband has called her to this strange address nearby um that happens to be at like a um funeral parlor um and she's like well that's weird Arthur's supposed to be in Ingolstadt but maybe I'll go just to see what's up she goes there and <laughs> it's Dracula's surprise. Ben Helsing and Arthur at the border control office managed to get the address of that funeral parlor. But, you know, they've traveled a long way. So they travel back to Bavaria, back home in the early morning and are surprised to find that Mina is also awake. And she's like, oh, yeah, I just went out for a brisk stroll. And she has a very, like, fun look on her face. Pleased. Um, pleased look on her face. Um, Van Helsing and Arthur go to the funeral parlor but discover that the coffin has straight up disappeared. Um, The person who runs the parlor is like well that's strange. (laughs) They don't usually leave like this. So Van Helsing and Arthur are kind of starting from scratch about where to start looking for Dracula and while they go about doing this Arthur goes to give Mina a cross to kind of protect her. And as soon as she grabs it, it burns her hand and she faints. And Van Helsing, you know, examining her, sees the bite mark on her neck and is like, Dracula's targeting Mina. Oh, shit. But manages to convince Arthur to use Mina this time to lead them to Dracula. So that night, Van Helsing and Arthur are standing outside um, the house, watching the windows, trying to, like, catch Dracula as he arrives to the house And yet we see that Dracula has made it inside the house and attacks Mina again. Um, She is also very like, I'll open the door for you, pleased to be letting him in. The night passes and Van Helsing and Arthur return back inside and they're like, well, I guess he didn't show. And then they realize, no, Mina's been attacked. She needs an emergency blood transfusion. So they do that and they're like, well, how would he have been able to get past us. This is ridiculous. Is it possible that he could have shapeshifted? No, that's only a myth that vampires can do that. Van Helsing, despite having a medical degree, presumably, is like, well, Arthur, thank you for um, donating your blood to your wife. Go drink some wine. That would be the best thing for you. Arthur works through that wine and asks their maid, Gerda, to bring up another bottle. And she's like, oh, well... Miss Mina told me not to go down into the basement and I don't really want to go against her wishes again. And that's when Van Helsing goes, my God, the vampire was coming from inside the house. He races down to the wine cellar, sees that the coffin of dirt is there. And just as he sees that, <laughs> like a Scooby-Doo episode, um, the Count hops his head in through the door and like hisses and... As Van Helsing turns to go towards the door, the Count pulls the door closed and locks it. So Van Helsing puts his crucifix into the dirt so the Count can't come back and, like, bangs on the door. Arthur opens it, looking very puzzled, like he didn't just see, like, someone running from the back door. Mm -hmm. And Gerda suddenly screams upstairs um, because Dracula raced upstairs, grabbed Mina, and booked it. Out of the place. So now we get a chase scene as Dracula with Mina are racing back to his castle in Romania with Van Helsing and Arthur hot on his trail. (laughs) (laughs) The Count gets to the castle, digs a little hole real quick, and just dumps Mina inside the hole to hide her, I guess.
0: I don't know. She needs to be in soil before the sun rises.
1: I mean, she's not going to die. She had, she got the blood transfusion. I guess sure. he doesn't know that. But anyways, just pushes her into the hole and like <laughs> quickly covers her in dirt. And then uh, just as Van Helsing and Arthur arrive, the Count runs and tries to hide inside the castle. Van Helsing chases confronts him in the library and they get a little bit of a a hand-to-hand combat. By this time the sun is rising and so Van Helsing jumps up onto the table and pulls down the curtains. The light hits Dracula's foot and it turns to dust and so now he's like hobbling and eventually um, Van Helsing just gets all of Dracula's like face into the sun and he just like crumbles into dust
0: yeah he grabs two candlesticks and holds them <laughs> like like across each other in the shape of a crucifix to force dracula back into the light
1: and i don't think that shouldn't that's how work. crucifixes no. work but you know whatever maybe dracula was just like in shock from everything he didn't realize it wasn't an actual crucifix
0: i don't think that's how that should work either but it's <laughs> fine
1: in any case dracula is in dust he's been defeated um we do see that Mina's burned hand with like the cross burned in disappears she's with Arthur she's feeling much better it's fine and then the last shot of the movie is um the crumpled dust hand print being blown away by the wind with uh, the count's signet ring staying on the floor um and that's the end he's dusted (laughs) um as I'm sure you could tell with uh When I got particularly enthusiastic during the synopsis, um, I very much enjoyed particular parts of this movie, but uh, overall, the whole thing is quite fun. Um, I had a very good time.
0: I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. I think the key thing to sort of know about this movie is that it is explicitly meant to be subverting your expectations of a Dracula movie. It wants you to go, hey, wait a second that's not how the story goes
1: i was thinking about that especially because you said that uh the reason they had to change the name to horror of dracula is because universal was still re-releasing the 31 dracula in theaters so people are presumably pretty familiar with the like who is harker and all of that
0: yeah exactly like they approached this going people have seen dracula (laughs) you know like people are familiar with this story they felt that people were familiar enough that doing a new take on the story could be interesting Mm -hmm. you know rather than trying to be like well here's our version of the novel it was like well what if we subvert things and you can tell that it's intentionally a subversion rather than like just sort of change for changes sake the vampire hunter thing is a subversion And you can tell that it's an intentional subversion because they hide it. The opening of the movie follows the beats you would expect from like a standard Dracula movie. It's even got Harker's diary like the novel. And it's, you know, quoting from the novel. And here I am at the castle and I'm coming inside. And oh, here's the bit where Dracula can't meet me and I have to eat by myself and yada yada. And it's just going on the way you think. Mm -hmm. If they were just changing things for the sake of changing things, you would know up front that Jonathan Harker's a vampire hunter. Yeah. But because they play it like a twist, that means that all of the changes here are being done on purpose to subvert your expectations and surprise you, knowing that like there's been a lot of adaptations of Dracula and you're familiar with this story, right?
1: Yeah. As you said, we start with, you know, the tried and true beats of Dracula coming to the castle, whatever. And then when Harker sits down to write in his journal, he's like, this is my diary and this is what I'm saying th- things. I really liked that because it kind of brought in that epistolary element. It made it feel like that, like a real adaptation of an epistolary text. Mm-hmm. And of course, like, it's not like one and done. The diary keeps appearing throughout the movie as like a source of evidence.
0: Yeah, the scene where Van Helsing is recording his notes on the wax cylinder, that's not something that Van Helsing does in the novel, but it's something that Seward does in the novel. And like the wax cylinders of his notes are like one of the sources in the epistolary novel.
1: Yeah, so I really liked that element of the adaptation.
0: Um, I know that Jimmy Sangster wanted the characters in this film to be more active Mm -hmm. rather than the characters of the novel who are more reactive so he wanted the characters like already doing things like harker and van helsing already know who dracula is and what he is when the movie starts which puts them on kind of the same level as the audience Mm -hmm. um those who don't know are brought up to speed very quickly both in the audience and in the story. Van Helsing hands Arthur Harker's diary and is like, here, read this between scenes. Great, cool, we're up to speed. You know, for the first time, we don't get so much of a, like, what is a vampire big expedition speech, so much as we get the very first iteration of the, oh no, that rule is silly nonsense. Here's the real rules of how vampires work in this movie mm-hmm. scene, which is now like super, super common.
1: Yeah. Um, they specifically call out like, no, they can't shapeshift. There's no like turning into bats or mist or any of that sort. Um, but sunlight will kill them and you need to stake them.
0: And, you know, this movie is confident enough that we are familiar enough with Dracula that it can play around Mm -hmm. with things right additionally we get like this interesting mix of religion and science in van helsing's character Mm -hmm. where it's like vampires are repulsed by crucifixes because they are symbols of good but also van helsing gives these opinions like vampirism is similar to addiction like a vampire might not want to drink blood and take part in these things but they have to
1: yeah i feel like that was almost like a way to explain what was going on with the bride
0: yes absolutely she was like
1: i cannot tell you why i'm stuck here but like you need to help me get out and she seems to really actually want to be helped and get out um but as soon as the
0: as soon as dinner's on the table
1: (laughs) as soon as the temptation is presented she has to bite
0: yeah and it's interesting because i think there are two ways of reading that scene and i feel like the more surface level reading would be that it's a trap yeah for harker but if she's like intentionally drawing him into a trap you know it's like why is dracula so upset with her and stuff and it's like no no no. i think you're correct sarah i think like she does want to get out of there but she can't not be a vampire right
1: Mm -hmm. and to another level like she is stuck here because she needs the dirt that's here
0: right right away uh this is a movie that tells you it's going to be a sexier gorier dracula first off you have valerie gaunt's cleavage bearing dress as the bride of dracula which is like she's constantly framed and shot in ways that like make sure that you notice her boobs basically
1: and to the gory point um as the film opens the title card you know, shows up, they show the credits, whatever, and we zoom in on Dracula's casket with his nameplate and then blood drips onto it. And it's just like the reddest red ketchup you could find. And I love it because, like, we're also in the age of color movies not being every day.
0: Sure. Like, this is uh, an Eastman color movie and we aren't in that era yet of like, oh, it's a historical film make all the colors basically shades of mud then like that's still 20 to 30 years away right (laughs) and then you have the sort of explosion of blood and violence and fangs in that confrontation between the bride and dracula like when dracula busts into the library he gets this close-up where like his eyes are bloodshot his fangs are out he's already got like blood dripping from his mouth as if like he was feeding on something else in the other room maybe and he like grabs her and like throws her across the room and she kind of like skids on all fours and looks up at him and she's got like harker's blood dripping from her and like the fangs and everything
1: yeah i really liked the way that the movie itself was dynamic Mm. like yes the performances you talked about how Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee were doing their own stunts of jumping up onto tables and all that. Um, But the movie itself is dynamic with, like, going with close-ups. The arms that's out of frame suddenly coming in. um, And even, like, when the count appears, it's a long shot, Mm -hmm. um, both when he's at the top of the stairs and when he bursts in during the attack. And then he rushes up and you get the close-up of his face with like the red eyes yeah he
0: like you know either runs down the stairs in the first bit or in the library he (laughs) runs leaps over a table and then like runs up to the camera
1: there's a lot of energy in this movie
0: yeah they edit things quickly they use filmmaking techniques to make the exciting parts exciting yeah from that opening confrontation between dracula and the bride the movie basically like does not let up from that point on from the various stakings that have just like spurts of blood coming up and like pools of blood forming under the vampires and like the excellent screams, the excellent screams. I'm trying to think. And like, I don't know if we've ever seen a stake in a body before because in the universal movies they always liked to keep the stakings either like off camera with like groans and sound effects Mm -hmm. or they'd like keep the camera on the vampire's face and show you them like racked with pain and then they die but they wouldn't really tend to show you like stake in body the only thing that i can think
1: of is um House of Frankenstein, yeah. the stake is already in him. They pull it out. Um, or if they're holding a stake, like the vampire is holding the stake to them, it's like how you would hold a knife to right. yourself when you've been stabbed. Ah,
0: I've been ah stabbed. Ah. Yeah,
1: this is yeah. the first time that we've seen, like, uh, as As modern a version of the staking of like the hammer going in, the blood pooling, the screaming.
0: Yeah, making it like an on-screen violent gory act. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, you have the crucifix burns on the skin of the vampires. I
1: really liked the effect of that. Um, It was really well done. What I liked about Lucy's forehead burn is the part that burns her is the part of the crucifix where jesus is rather than like the flat part mm. and you can see the divots of the form
0: sure. on her uh and then of course you have the count's famous disintegration scene at the end um which seems to really heavily communicate like he's c- dead The count is yes you know not only is he merely dead he's really most sincerely dead
1: and then van helsing opens the window for the wind to blow the dust everywhere. Yeah, exactly. So like, like there's He's just... like I don't I'm not sweeping this. Yeah. <laughs> um which is odd because I know that Christopher Lee does future Dracula mm-hmm. movies. So yeah. I mean, we know no one truly stays dead in these movies. But this
0: movie really seems to be wanting to say like now he's dead. Yeah. Speaking about the screams, you brought that up. I wanted to take a moment to mention like the sound design in this movie is really, really good.
1: Yeah, the sound design I really liked. So it it seems pretty minor. But when Jonathan is first arriving, he crosses like a little bridge um, because there's a little bit of a stream. Um, and he comments on it in his voiceover and we hear the stream. Other times when we arrive to the castle, we are focused on other things and we don't hear the stream. Mm. And the reason I'm calling this out is because it's showing that it's not just the sound of water in the background that happens to get picked up. They are purposefully constructing what our attention is drawn to.
0: Sure. Something that I really liked that, you know, helped give a feeling of space and of a world around the characters is when they stake Lucy, you know, it's nighttime when she first shows up with Tanya. Van Helsing attacks her. She retreats into her crypt and they wait for daylight to stake her and they're inside the crypt but we know that it's daylight because these like birds like morning birds start chirping outside and stuff Mm -hmm. um so i really like little things like that
1: yeah they're putting a lot of attention to it which is like really cool and i think you can really see that also with the music Mm -hmm. Uh, the music is done really well i really like the dracula yes kind of thing um it's it's just really well done. It's it's more than just like, oh, we're doing a, a horror movie to cash in on Frankenstein. It's more than we're doing a Dracula adaptation because he's like the name brand vampire. Like they're really as much as like they definitely changed stuff from the book and and Christopher Lee might have wanted something a little bit more truthful to the core of the book. I think they've done a really fantastic adaptation here.
0: Yeah, I find that, like, the score really helps pump up the tension and the excitement throughout. Like, it keeps the audience on the edge of their seats. And it lends a lot of power to each appearance of Lee's Dracula with that, like, very declarative theme. Yes. Yes.
1: Uh, <laughs> it, it reminds me of John Williams' Superman. yes. Because it's like Superman.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And it makes me, in my head, start thinking of Superman with the Dracula. Like, Superman. Right. (laughs) I suppose that would be Bizarro's theme, maybe. Right. Yeah, I really liked the castle set. Mm -hmm. Overall, the sets were good. But I really liked how large the castle sets felt. Yeah. And I don't know... Because I know that they're just shooting at like Brayside Studios, so I don't know if they have these different rooms already set up, but it really made it feel like this was a large castle, even though we really only see two to three rooms. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, the movie looks gorgeous, right? Like you have the very red blood, um, but there's a lot of other gorgeous color in the movie. Oh my
1: gosh. Van Helsing's smoking jacket. Yeah. It's like this purple velvet. Yeah. Mm-hmm
0: and there's you know um
1: fashion icon
0: (laughs) there's wonderful colored lighting um the sets have great color the costumes have great color you know there's a lot of really good greens in this movie in particular the thing i noticed with the lighting was the difference in the color of the lighting that occurs in scenes that are telling us the transition from day to night it's really brilliantly done like it's Not a huge change in the light levels because, you know, it's just the difference between sun above horizon to sun below horizon. It's not fully like, oh, it's night and here's the moon. It's just a change in the light color. Like it just goes from this warmer color to this cooler color. And it's not really remarked on. It's just like a thing that happens in certain scenes that you can like feel in the movie, Mm -hmm. you know, when the colors go all cold. Yeah, it's really, really good basically this movie is giving you kind of a blueprint and saying here's what gothic looks like in color
1: yeah speaking of cooler colors uh the entire time that they are in the castle they all have frosty breath
0: yes which is a really cool nice small touch. detail yeah
1: i really liked peter cushing's van helsing mm. i think he brings a lot to whatever character he seems to do. Yeah. But I think he does a really fantastic job as Van Helsing. I would say he's better as Van Helsing than he was at Dr. Frankenstein.
0: I think that's the majority opinion. I really like Cushing's Frankenstein because I like what a... Son of a bitch he is. Yeah. And what a like fascinating take on the character it is. Because Frankenstein's a shitty guy. But even the novel and most adaptations encourage you to identify with Frankenstein. Like he's shitty because he's an idiot and he didn't think things through, but like ultimately you're kind of supposed to like him or Mm -hmm. at least be on his side and understand his point of view. Whereas like Jimmy Sangster was like, wait, no, he's a rich nobleman who like does crimes? No, fuck this guy. (laughs) Um, With Van Helsing, like Van Helsing is still a hero, but the big change here is he's gone from being sort of the elder mentor figure here to give exposition like the obi-wan kenobi of dracula to just being the unambiguous hero of the story he's active he's already hunting dracula when the movie starts you know he's the protagonist now
1: i think christopher lee does a fantastic job i love that he gets to speak (laughs) um i uh really enjoy The minor details he does, like after he sees Lucy, he like clenches his jaw in unique ways Mm -hmm. um, before leaving. So very like subtle things. I really, (laughs) I don't want this to sound weird. I really like that when he attacks Mina that last time, um, he like goes to make out with her a little bit. Yes. And then bites her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I just, I really like what he brought to the role. I kind of wish I would have been able to see a bit more of him because... Once Dracula leaves the castle, he physically isn't around. He definitely haunts the film with, you know, having turned Lucy and being like a horrific specter over the movie. But he himself is not around. And I would have loved to see more of him.
0: I think he has about eight minutes total screen time in the movie if you like pop it all together. His performance as the Count is kind of hamstrung by that lack of screen time as well as a lack of dialogue Um, Mm -hmm. after harker dies he never talks for the rest of the movie Um, indeed the only person he ever talks to in the movie is harker but nevertheless lee makes a big impression um he brings an immense amount of presence to the role even when
1: he's not in vampire form like when he's just the count and like walking through the hallways it's like I think it's probably because the camera is shooting it down and tilting up, so you can really feel his
0: presence. Yeah, and he's six foot five. That too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As well, he brings a lot of, like, gusto and charisma and even, like, a variety of layers to the character, despite the lack of dialogue. Um, One thing that I notice about his Dracula... And this is sort of true of Lugosi's to an extent, but Lugosi's is a lot more toned down. Lugosi's Dracula is a charmer, but weirdly enough, you get this feeling watching him that like Lugosi's Dracula is charming to the audience, but not necessarily to the characters in the movie, who all find him like a little bit off-putting with the exception of Lucy. Um, And part of that is... There's sort of a, oh, he's a weird foreigner thing going on there. Yeah. And then as a vampire, he's very menacing, but it's a very sort of held back menace. Um, The only time we really see him get like a little wild is, you know, when he gets revealed to have no reflection in the mirror or when Van Helsing brings out the crucifix, those kind of moments. With Lee's Dracula we have a guy who looks sounds and acts like he is a nobleman and he is charming and polite and erudite in the way that a nobleman is. And we get the feeling that like, you know, the women want him and yet when he becomes a vampire, he becomes like feral. You know, he's baring his teeth and he's got blood dripping down his mouth and he's just like wild and out of control. That's a really new Mm -hmm. element, right? And the idea that Dracula is hunting these women because he desires a replacement for the one that Harker staked that really hits with Lee's ideas about Dracula being motivated by loneliness and about like vampirism being a compulsion
1: sure i think that that is definitely an interpretation um i think another interpretation of dracula's motivation here is pettiness yes yeah yeah that's (laughs) petty revenge um because he goes after lucy because and like he could have gone after any chick sure but he picks lucy because harker killed his bride yes so he's like, okay, I'm going to do that. And then it's like, well, you guys just fucked up Lucy. Guess I'll go after Mina. Right. And like specifically targets Mina, draws her in. Um, so it feels very like petty. And like, this isn't a criticism for the record. I mm. I, I love a petty Dracula. I had heard of um, interpretations of horror of Dracula as being on the scale of Feminist to not feminist, being on the feminist side of that spectrum because it's like, oh, the women want the sex, showing them as being lustful. And sure, yes, the movie definitely does that. Um, And I'll add an asterisk of a debate of whether something is or isn't X, whether that's feminist or whatever, um, is a little reductive to me because things are always more than just yes or no. I will say that I don't necessarily know about calling Horror of Dracula a capital F feminist (laughs) trademark movie because the women are just used as props, not quite to the state of being a sexy lamp, but they are only targeted because of their relationship to the men.
0: Sure. I think that this is a movie that is sort of Tempting to apply social commentary to, but is dangerous to apply social commentary to because what we have here is women who are trapped in loveless marriages or, like, at least boring marriages who then get this like thrill and excitement from Dracula, who provides them with like a sexual satisfaction, metaphorically speaking. You know, that was Terence Fisher's read on the story. And so there's this thing of like, well, maybe if you guys allowed your wives to have like inner lives and express themselves and enjoy themselves and not just be like these trapped Victorian gilded cage wives they wouldn't be so susceptible to dracula and that's tempting as a social commentary because this movie's coming out in the late 1950s which was a very like buttoned up conservative time for britain where women felt you know trapped in the home and and all of that kind of thing it starts to break down when you remember that the like uh, instigator of this sexual revolution is the blood sucking vampire and that the hero of the movie is, you know, Van Helsing coming in and like restoring conservative order. And, you know, as a representative of like science and religion and like proper buttoned up British values kind of thing. Right. So although the women all seem much happier with Dracula, they do end up dead with dracula um so i think the movie works as a story with in itself and i think that that take on the movie is really interesting and i think that examining the way that our pleasures can lead to darkness or that like dark impulses can seem fun at the time and, and all those things are all really interesting takes on the vampire
1: but the movie isn't really dealing with those topics. Right,
0: in terms of anything more than just what does that mean for these characters in this situation? Yeah. It's it's one of those things where as we've mentioned with kind of previous movies like the social commentary element means that you can kind of read it both ways and I think if you want to attach it to the time period, I don't know as this movie's trying to make a statement about anything so mm-hmm. much as maybe those themes and th- thoughts and ideas about, you know, repression versus revolution were maybe in the air in 1958 Britain, you know, inspiring people's ideas, but not so much being a thing that like the movie is commenting on, you know?
1: Yeah. I think that's, um, that's a really good point to add on here too, because both Lee and Singster kind of hit on that same kind of theme albeit from different angles Mm. um so i think you're right that you know it's something that's in the cultural air not necessarily something that they are purposefully
0: speaking to in this movie right um you mentioned that lee's dracula is petty sure (laughs) but i will say that lee's dracula feels like he is a great power yeah um he tosses men and women around like they're dolls and he dominates the rooms that he's in The Dracula of the Universal movies sort of felt like he was a threat to the people in his immediate vicinity. Like he arrives in an area and once it's used up, he moves on to the next area. Lee's Dracula feels like he is a threat to the entire world who all human decency demands must be destroyed.
1: Yes. But at the end of the day, you just have to chase him down and hold two candlesticks together, you know? True, true.
0: (laughs) I will say... Cushing came up with the idea of Van Helsing leaping from the table to pull down the curtains, as well as the idea of forcing Dracula into the light using a crucifix made from two candlesticks. Um, And this last part, as we kind of mentioned, doesn't really make sense because it suggests that what a vampire is afraid of is just like the shape of a cross (laughs) and not like the religious meaning of a crucifix. Um, But Cushing did it because he felt that crucifixes had been used so much in the movie already that he needed to kind of do something different and it makes van helsing look very like resourceful and capable of thinking on his feet in defeating dracula yeah um they're kind of you know he's using every tool at his disposal as it were um so i really like that about cushing's van helsing now speaking of other things that are changed from the novel at first it may seem like we've swapped lucy and mina's names again for no good reason Um, But while their relationships to the men in the movie have changed, like Lucy is now Jonathan's fiancé and Arthur's sister, and Mina is now Arthur's wife, their own roles in the story are still the same. Mm -hmm. Lucy is the first to go and becomes a vampire who attacks children before being staked herself, while Mina is the second victim who the heroes are trying to save before it is too late.
1: I think also in what you see of their personalities, Lucy is younger Mm -hmm. um, and they use that to kind of like uh, show why she was so easily swayed by Dracula with like, you know, even to the point of being super into the fantasy of laying on the bed in that certain pose. Um, Whereas Mina, I mean, she's wearing like the fashion of Victorian era, but she's, she's buttoned up to the neck. Um, She is playing the good wife. It is more along with society's roles, like what you see with Mina. Right. Because Mina even comments on Lucy, like in the novel, um, like that it's a little scandalous for Lucy to be threading these men along. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so Mina's always been a little bit more conservative or subdued.
0: Yeah. So they themselves are the same characters, even as their relationships to the other characters in the story are different. Yeah. Um, So it's not actually a name switch. Now, I think the reason Lucy was moved to being Jonathan's fiance is largely because Sangster decided that rather than past Dracula's, who sort of pieced from the castle with Harker, like, weak but still alive, Lee's Count would do, you know, the smart thing and kill that fool before leaving and so with harker like dead it doesn't really make sense to connect him with mina anymore you want the person connected to mina to still be alive to be running around with van helsing doing things mm-hmm. yeah.
1: i think it helps with the justification for why dracula goes after these people yeah a little stronger as well
0: yeah absolutely uh michael go is quite good playing a character who's sort of just like combines all of the menfolk in the novel's Dracula hunting party into one sidekick for Van Helsing
1: he is really good a few times I would get distracted because I would see him as Alfred Mm.
0: um
1: that's not his fault uh I just think it was really interesting because it gave me more made me think about Alfred with more depth if that (laughs) makes any sense sure but he's really good here
0: his change of attitude when presented with obvious evidence of vampires is really refreshing to me. David Manners Harker in the 31 version was so skeptical that if like after the end of the story he was still like, "Yeah, I'm not sure if vampires are a thing. I would not be surprised." Um so it was really nice to see a character who just goes like, "Oh damn. Yeah, I guess vampires okay let's do this thing the other thing is because van helsing has been moved from mentor to protagonist Holmwood being a sidekick for van helsing kind of structurally fixes a lot of the issues that we tend to have with jonathan harker because when harker is like structurally positioned as if he's the protagonist of the story his complete and utter uselessness becomes really frustrating but if he's just a sidekick like that's fine yeah Another major change from the novel is moving the geography uh, from sort of the far-flung locations of Whitby and the Carpathian Mountains, which are 2,700 kilometers apart, to the cities of Karlstadt in Bavaria and Klausenberg uh, in Romania, which are about 1,400 kilometers apart.
1: What I also liked about the reframing of a being in Germany as opposed to being in London and like a foreigner coming in, there's never that feeling of like, oh no, a foreigner in Horror of Dracula.
0: Right. Like, if you, I mean, part of that is because Lee's not doing any kind of accent, but like, yeah, they're,
1: they're all speaking their British accents. Right.
0: Nobody's doing an accent. And so if you read that as meaning that they're all speaking German, right? that all kind of yeah. is fine. Um, so he's, he's you know, the same as them, only not. The other thing that this gets around, of course, is, you know, Dracula doesn't have to go on a big boat trip so we can cut that set piece out of the movie and save money. Um, it also makes travel back and forth to the castle, uh, something that's able to be managed with less hassle and in shorter amounts of time you know there's only one border that we have to cross between germany and the austrian empire and we can like run back and forth in carriages um so the whole thing where like dracula flees back to his castle at the end and we have to follow him is way less of like a whole thing yeah exactly it keeps it means that your climax doesn't get bogged down with like okay well i guess we need to get steamship tickets and you know like all of yeah. that kind of stuff um it doesn't explain all the very english names of the characters but you know that's not very important
1: Meh. so we've been talking already a lot about horror of dracula versus the 31 dracula mm-hmm. let's move on to ranking and see how they compare
0: absolutely so the 1931 dracula is sitting at number 19 currently on the list
1: when i went about ranking i started there made sense to do so and i feel like horror of dracula is better
0: yes agreed
1: awesome i had my range between 12 to 19 with the ceiling of it being isle of the dead Hmm. and the reason i did that is because at 11 is picture of dorian gray and the use of color in that movie was so like mind-boggling. I really like the use of color in *Horror of Dracula*, and I think they use it really, really well. But I, I kind of just felt like there was more depth to the story and picture of *Dorian Gray*. There was, um I don't know. I, I guess that's kind of just where I settled. Anything higher than this, like when we get into like the top ten, they all tend to be movies that are. A about something you know they have a, a social commentary going on here and as we kind of talked about in depth horror of dracula hits upon some stuff but doesn't actually talk about things i i felt more comfortable being in the um top 20 range i guess you could say
0: interesting where were you looking top 10 okay we're, we're in the top 10 so for me horror of dracula you know can be given a social commentary reading. I don't know as it's particularly fair to do so. It's a gorgeous movie. It sounds great. It looks great. Every level of it's being like put together really well. Mm. Additionally, while the story and characters might be maybe a little shallower than some of the others that we see here in the top 10, It's only 82 minutes long. And the thing about it at that length is like, it moves and it goes and it doesn't waste your time. And even within that 82 minutes, it still creates like strong characters who you, who feel solid, Um, you know, Van Helsing, Dracula, even, you know, Mina and Arthur, they don't feel like cardboard cutouts or archetypes. But the main reason why I started bumping it up into this range is because judged as a horror movie with like thrills and scares and spooks and like disturbing sights and sounds and like stuff that's going to kind of like put you on the edge of your seat and make the hair on your arms stand up and all of that. Dracula, for me, beats out a lot of these movies.
1: So where were you looking?
0: Well, passing movies like the invisible man and the old dark house that have a lot of comic relief i passed up beyond the spiral staircase which is much more of like a slow burn and i got there to... are some
1: real nice staircases in
0: horror of dracula true <laughs> um and i got to looking at the top three and i think that's where that element of like the movie not being about something started to hurt it for me so i was looking between uh gojira at number three and the spiral staircase at number four and kind of thinking of slotting it between those two
1: okay i think that's very interesting um isle of the dead kind of the chill scene in there is when the chick realizes that she's been buried alive and screams and that still makes me feel sick personally Mm. a lot more screams in horror of dracula um i think just as blood curdling though I will say though, those screams in Horror of Dracula are because like I'm being staked, uh, and not the existential, like, oh god, I have been buried alive. So it's kind of like quality over quantity, not to say that the horror of Dracula's screams don't have any quality.
0: I think what we're seeing here too is the beginning of, in a shift of types of horror. Yeah. Older movies tend to have more existential horrors more like think about it horrors because they weren't allowed to like show things horror of dracula is reveling in being able to show things so it doesn't really need to make you think about like you know the 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 horrific nature of like man's inhumanity to man or something because it's like no think about the horrific nature of this guy taking a bite out of your neck (laughs) um And that's just like a different kind of horror. But what we're going to see, of course, is that's the kind of horror that's going to come to dominate in the next several decades. You know, um, the idea of what you're getting scared at here is seeing a violent murder done in an extreme fashion um, is going to be more the style of horror moving forward.
1: What do you think about this compared to the Black Cat then? Because they're both leaning on... Um, some historical stuff. Um, I think Black Cat maybe a little bit more so. Uh, You definitely have the um, more of an element of, you know, two minds playing chess with people's lives Mm -hmm. in the Black
0: Cat. A lot of the movies up here are probably smarter than Horror of Dracula, but I really like Horror of Dracula's pacing. I really like how intense it is. I really like that it doesn't really give you that many breaks. There's a couple of comic relief moments here and there.
1: But they're minor scenes. Yeah.
0: It's not like, you know, with Picture of Dorian Gray, there's like moments where we can like relax in the garden and watch like a dinner party for a while and things don't get upsetting again for, you know, several more minutes.
1: And I I will just like stop you right there for a minute because um, while I see what you mean with like Horror of Dracula not being like, capital i intelligent mm. uh, like some of these other movies i will say that it's very smartly made yes like it is really well made it's not just like one and done cheaply thrown together as if people don't know what they're doing like everyone here is doing a lot
0: while the reason for this in the black cat is because of censorship i will say that the black cat suffers by not really being able to be explicit about what the fuck is going on in its story true like by the ending things start to get really confusing and while that gives the movie kind of like a powerful nightmare logic you're never confused about what's happening in dracula dracula is not beating around the bush about anything and you are absolutely right that its strength is it is very well made on every level by a team who you get the impression like knew what they were doing and how to go about doing it. Um, There's not a lot of guesswork. Personally, the reason why I ended up going as high as I did was because I looked at The Old Dark House at five and that movie's a really good slow burn. Um, It has a lot of really good scares, um, but does have some like horror comedy elements to it. Sure. And so... You know, then I looked at Spiral Staircase and I went, no, I think I like this more than Spiral Staircase. But like, I'm okay with getting argued down to somewhere between my spot and your ceiling.
1: Yeah, no, like I, I guess right now I'm trying to determine whether it's over under on Spiral Staircase. Because yeah, that movie is a slow burn, but it also has fucking, is it Ethel Barrymore? Yes. Uh, Coming out
0: with a revolver at the end and it's dope. For sure. But like, is that as dope as anything that happens in Horror of Dracula? Yeah, um, but you
1: know, I like the slow burns.
0: I know. That's sort of the the thing that we're struggling with here, I think. Yeah. Um, the other thing to keep in mind here is this is a strength of Horror of Dracula, but a weakness of it as a horror movie, which is that because Van Helsing is a protagonist and Jamie Sangster wanted the characters to be more active in the fight against Dracula, we aren't really seeing things from Lucy and Mina's POV. And actually, because Lucy and Mina kind of want it, um, it lessens the horror of the story in that way from their POV. So the horror of the story is more in we need to stop Dracula before it's too late and before he visits more horror on other people than like an explicit horror that the audience is empathizing with, like the lead character in Spiral Staircase, who's, you know, alone and um, mute, I believe. Yeah. Um, and trapped. Uh, so you feel this empathy for her. Whereas in Horror of Dracula, we're sort of more just like along for a ride.
1: Yeah, I feel like that kind of, explains my contention here i will submit um that we put it below spiral staircase but above old dark house
0: okay um you're pretty confident that it should be above old dark house yeah okay
1: it's much more focused it it manages to take a very complex novel and slim it down in a way that is still like very surprising and very economical in its storytelling. Old Dark House has like every one of those characters feels like they're fully fledged and have a life outside of this old dark house. Um, but that also means that we need to like spend some time on what's your backstory. Um, and then these two characters falling in love. Um, and while that adds to the slow burnness of it, I think in comparison to horror of Dracula, it, uh, it makes it feel a little too, too baggy.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: I don't want to say bloated. No, but just like you got, got many pockets. They're like cargo shorts.
0: Okay. (laughs) Um, yeah. I mean, I think ultimately where you come down on horror of Dracula is going to come to what pace of horror you like you know yeah. if you like that slow burn stuff versus whether you like the the more like roller coaster kind of horror movie because dracula is definitely more of a roller coaster kind of horror movie that's almost the biggest difference between it and the 31 version because the 31 version is absolutely more of a like steep in this atmosphere kind of movie and so i could see it it's, it's tough because it can be a bit divisive in that way, just on like what your personal taste is. But I am good with sort of splitting the difference and putting this at the new number five, Horror of Dracula, aka Dracula, 1958, directed by Terrence Fisher.
1: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can reach out over email at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or chat with us over Twitter at underscore ScreamScene.
0: ScreamScene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show using our RSS feed and support the show by leaving us a rating and a review. Tell your friends about the show on social media, or in real life, word of mouth is the best way for us to grow our audience. And if you can afford it, you can also support us financially by heading over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the 5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content, and each month, patrons get to vote on what our horror-adjacent bonus episode is for that month. So check it out at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast
1: so what are we watching next week ben
0: well next week sarah we are watching the movie that was released as the second half of horror of dracula's double bill which is a film called the thing that couldn't die we'll see if it lives up to horror (laughs) of dracula i think probably not no i think a big reason why i was looking top 10 for horror of dracula honestly was because of like the kinds of movies we've been seeing lately.
1: That is very fair. Well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night.
0: Bye. Bye.